Well, good morning. It's not bad. Let's try it one more time. Good morning. There we go. I like the energy. It's not quite as cold as it's been lately. Welcome to Wednesday Chapel. My name is Paul. I get to serve here as the Associate Vice President for Student Life and Chaplain of the College, and I am thrilled to gather with you this morning to worship Jesus. We uh, had a snow day last Wednesday, so we were not able to continue our Good Life sermon series. We all want to live a good life, but not everybody does. Why is that? That's sort of the big idea. So uh, we're continuing that today. Dr. Rachel Griffiths is uh, going to be coming here in a few moments uh, to give us uh, a message. And uh, this is right in her wheelhouse, Virtues, um, a book that is inspired this series, written by an English professor at a different institution. Um, yeah, so it's been really fun to work with Dr. Griffiths on this. She's served in our English department. This is her sixth year, uh, and I'm excited uh, what she has for us today um, on hope as a virtue, as a habit of excellence that we can pursue for the good life. Good morning. It's, it's good to be with you and to be a part of this chapel series on the good life. Um, so as you know, our virtue for this morning is hope. Um, so I'm going to start by telling you about a novel that depicts a situation where it would be very easy to give up hope. If you've taken a, a class with me, chances are you've heard of this novel, which you see pictured on the screen. Very good. Uh, the novel is The Road by Cormac McCarthy, the great American author. It's a very simple, heart-wrenching story about a hopeless situation. The man who you see pictured on the screen is living in a post-apocalyptic world. Now that means that the world as we know it has ended, perhaps due to nuclear war or solar flares or a massive eruption of a volcano. It's not made clear what it is. But the earth is a wasteland. Nothing will grow. There are no animals to kill for food. The sky is perpetually cloudy, and the earth is growing colder every day. There are few humans left on the earth, and most have joined gangs of cannibals. So if you run into another person in this world, it's likely that person is part of a gang that is going to kill you and eat you. Now to make the situation even worse, the man has a small son who came screaming into the world just as it was ending. That baby boy is now a small child, probably somewhere around six or seven years old. And the man, the boy's father, has really good survival skills. It seems like he has military training or medical training. And so he's been successful in finding food and evading the cannibals so far. But at the beginning of the novel, he's realizing that he and his son cannot survive another winter in the place where they have been living, um, which is probably Tennessee. He's realizing that in order for them to stay alive, they need to travel south into the coast to see if the conditions there are more livable. And so this man ventures out onto the road with his small son. They walk and they sleep and they scavenge for food. They hide in the woods from cannibals, and terrible, unspeakable things happen. They see an army of cannibals march by, and the man and the boy witness with their own eyes people they've tied up and enslaved and will at some time kill and eat. In another scene, they go into an old plantation house looking for food, and they see humans trapped in the cellar who are missing limbs and who are slowly being killed to feed the cannibals. These unspeakable situations tempt the man to give in to despair, to give up any hope of getting into a better situation, 
and he seriously wonders if he should give up and end it all by killing his son and killing himself. Now, it's kind of hard to imagine how you might feel sympathetic for a man thinking about killing his son, but the situation he's in is so dire that most readers sympathize with his struggle. Many of my students, some of you are perhaps in the audience now, have made the argument in my classes that it's actually a cruel thing for the man to keep his son alive. Think about it. If the man kills his son with his pistol, he is saving him from freezing to death or starving to death. And most significantly, if he kills his son, he ensures that his child will not be captured by cannibals, tortured to death, and eaten. So in the face of this temptation, the man chooses to hope. When he gets up in the morning, he hopes that they will find food, that they won't run into a cannibal, and that they will survive to see another day. The entirety of the novel basically describes the man's courageous, hopeful journey on the road. And that journey involves getting up every day, putting one foot in front of the other, looking for food, cooking and preparing food, comforting his son when he's scared. This story is a model of hope that can help us to grow in hope if we pay attention to it and get caught up in its drama. So what is hope? Karen Swallow Pryor, who's the author of the book that uh, this, um, the, the writer who's guiding this chapel series and the one that we just handed out um, earlier, um, she writes that hope regards something good in the future that is difficult but possible to obtain. The great theologian Thomas Aquinas says, hope is a certain stretching out of the appetite towards good. The, the philosopher Joseph Pieper says that it is a steadfast turning toward the true fulfillment of man's nature, that is, toward good, only when it has its source in the reality and grace in man and is directed toward supernatural happiness in God. In other words, theological hope is different from simply wishing for what you want. Rather, it's the orientation of your will and your appetites toward the good, or as Pieper says, happiness in God. So I'm going to spend a little more time for defining this virtue for you by telling you what it is not. As I said, hope is not the sentiment you feel when you're crossing your fingers for a good score on your exam or to get accepted into your top choice graduate school. That sentiment is often called optimism, and it's what the philosopher Terry Eagleton says, um, says about optimism. He argues that the United States is one of the few countries on earth in which optimism is almost a state ideology. He describes optimism as a compulsive cheeriness that accompanies the I-can-do-anything-I-want rhetoric prevalent in American culture. He says that whereas optimism is based on an opinion that things tend to work out well, hope is a strenuous commitment. Hope and temperamental optimism are at daggers drawn, he says, and it entails confession of how grave a situation is whereas optimism underestimates the obstacles to take tackling it. So what he's saying is that the optimistic person has a casual belief that things just tend to work out well, that they don't need to worry about things going badly because they will probably turn out in your favor. The hopeful person, on the other hand, looks a dire situation in the face and still believes that the situation can be redeemed, that good can come from it. 
Now, this is why the story of the boy and the man and the road is so powerful, because these characters look their mortality in the face every day, all day long. They encounter the worst humanity has seen and yet proceed with full awareness of what they might face and suffer. Even they know it's likely that they will fall prey to cannibals, they still put one foot in front of the other every day, hoping they will find food, hoping they will reach the ocean, hoping they will live to see another day. Now, a couple of weeks ago when Caleb spoke about the virtue of humility, he mentioned that the virtues are something of a balancing act and that going too far in one direction can land you into a vice. Um, So as we're defining hope, I also want to draw attention to a sin that thrives on the absence of hope, um, and that is a sin that goes by the name of sloth or asadia. So in the Christian virtue tradition, sloth or asadia, those two words are interchangeable here, is one of the seven deadly sins characterized by stagnancy, spiritual torpor, and a person's refusal to actively pursue or practice virtue. As John Charles Knott asserts, acedia is a lack of care given to one's spiritual life, a lack of concern for one's salvation. Bilotti describes this sin as turning away from the divine and good, less in active rebellion, and more in effete resignation. And then Dorothy Sayers, um, last person on the screen, dramatically describes the slothful person as someone who believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing it would die for. What I hope you're getting is that the sin of sloth or asadia is a person's failure to rise to the demands of their life. And sometimes this manifests as the couch potato who just doesn't want to show up, but it can also be the person who keeps him or herself really busy with unimportant things. I become aware of my own temptation towards sloth when I feel tempted to clean my house rather than to grade your brilliant papers. Okay, Um, I'm avoiding what's really important in my life by keeping myself busy with something that isn't what I should really be devoting my attention to. The slothful person chooses to despair rather than to hope, chooses to turn away from the duties and responsibilities and privileges that God has given to him or her. The man in the road has his own struggles with sloth. Until the very last pages of the novel, he struggles with a quality of despair that evokes the definitions of asadia that I gave you earlier. Um, It is a turning away from the divine and good in effete resignation. When the man and the boy, for example, find a bunker stocked with food and displays, the narrative tells us, even now, some part of him wished they'd never found this refuge. Some part of him always wished it to be over. There were few nights lying in the dark that he did not envy the dead. Moreover, the central question of the novel, whether he should kill his son, the ultimate turn away from the divine and good, demonstrates the appeal of Asadia for this character who faces the horrors of the apocalypse. But we also see him fighting his temptation towards a sloth and his strenuous commitment to hope. He trains himself to stop thinking of the past world, a world wherein food was abundant, where he had a warm bed to sleep in, where he wasn't terrified for every waking moment of his life. When he dreams of the former world, he considers those dreams the call of languor and death and siren worlds. He makes a ceremony of letting the past go when he examines his wallet and materials that were a part of his pre-apocalyptic existence, 
such as a photo of his wife, along with his driver's license and money. And he throws that wallet into the woods, leaves the picture on the road, and decidedly walks away from it. He embodies a hopeful perspective, recognizing how grave the situation is, but still looking for good in the future. The man distinguishes himself in his practice of the virtue of hope by directing his attention at and genuinely believing in a greater good. R.J. Snell asserts that sloth is overcome when we affirm the goodness of the world. The man's affirmation of his son's goodness and the sanctity of his son's life motivates him to preserve both their lives in the most extreme circumstances. When the man finally answers the question repeated through the novel, can you do it? And by can you do it, he's asking himself if he can kill his son. His struggle with Asadia is eclipsed by hope. He concludes at the end of the novel, as he himself is going to die, I can't hold my son dead in my arms. I thought I could, but I can't. And then he proceeds with what is possibly the most hopeful statement in all of the literature that I've read in English. Goodness will find the little boy. It always has. It will again. And let me say it again. Goodness will find the little boy. It always has. It will again. This is hope. He is going to die and leave his son alone in the most horrible version of the world that you can imagine. And he still says it. Goodness will find the little boy. It always has. It will again. This statement is the culmination of what he affirms throughout the story, even as he struggles with Asadia. Earlier in the story, he tells his son, my job is to take care of you. I was appointed to do that by God. The narrative also affirms this stance with the statement, he knew only that the child was his warrant. As I said earlier, Asadia is a failure to rise to the demands of one's life, that it's a turning away from the divine and good, less in active rebellion, and more in effete resignation. The man is tempted over and over again to turn away from the sanctity of his son's life and to give up, and no one would blame him for it. But as bad as things get, as terrified he is that his son is going to be captured and tortured and eaten by cannibals, he can't shake this holy duty to his son, the sense that he was appointed by God to take care of this little boy. So I want to back up a little and consider the genre of this story and hopefully bring some application to your own situation as a college student. The road belongs in the post-apocalyptic genre of literature of which you are undoubtedly familiar. You know other post-apocalyptic stories, The Hunger Games, The Walking Dead, The Matrix, I Am Legend, The Maze Runner. Now, the great Christian theologian of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, gave an, gave an address to college students in 1939 that puts into perspective our tendency to produce apocalyptic literature when he acknowledged that human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. In this famous address, Lewis sympathizes with Oxford students who feel conflicted about the almost comic discrepancy between the onset of World War II and the seemingly mundane act of going to class and studying every day. Some of you may have felt that in 2020 when our world suddenly changed with the arrival of COVID-19. You watched the world shut down, you heard about people dying, many of you lost people close to you who contracted this deadly virus. 
So we have some things to learn from what C.S. Lewis says to college students who were going to class every day as war was raging around them. He told his young audience, never in peace or war commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. He then proceeds essentially to tell them to engage in daily life and complete the tasks of a student even as if it feels as if they are fiddling while Rome burns. Lewis's admonishment to college students to be persistent in their daily duties is redolent of the instructions in theological and devotional writings regarding those afflicted with asadia. Nault advises those struggling with this sin to maintain fidelity to one's everyday routine, fidelity to one's rule of life. What Lewis recognizes is that college students are likely to struggle with asadia, and this is particularly heightened when a world war breaks out or when a deadly virus is sleeping, sweeping through the world. Kathleen Norris suggests, asadia can strike anyone whose work requires self-motivation and solitude, and it is a danger to anyone whose work requires great concentration and discipline, and yet is considered by many to be of little practical value. Does that sound familiar? College students are, less, are thus likely to struggle with this idea as they develop the discipline needed to complete their studies. You are tempted to be on TikTok or Snapchat when you should be writing a paper. You're tempted to play video games when you should be studying for a midterm exam. You procrastinate on the work that is really important and spend too much time on low-stakes assignments. As Nora says, it is common for you to feel these temptations because the work of a student requires self-motivation and solitude, concentration and discipline, because it's considered by many to be of little practical value. In general, our culture is enamored with get-rich-quick, rags-to-riches stories. If you don't see a an immediate return on investment, then the work you aren't doing, the work you're doing isn't worth doing. Does that sound familiar? Although that's what our culture encourages you to believe, I'm here to tell you that you achieve the good things in life through patience and perseverance, by putting one foot in front of the other every day, by keeping hope that your faithfulness every day will turn into a future good. In doing so, you're holding a countercultural perspective. Now, as you already know, the road gives us a compelling example of a character who refuses to succumb to Asadia. The man is painfully consistent in his daily tasks regarding survival and the care of himself and his son. Although the earth is literally dying, he executes his tasks with great attention. In the face of great evils, the characters commit to the higher moral standards the father describes when he says, this is what the good guys do. They give up. They don't give up. They keep trying. So I want to dwell further on this idea that faithfulness in one's daily tasks is a practice of hope. One way the novel drives home this idea is through the motif of movement. After all, the name of the novel, The Road, signifies movement. What else do you do on a road but move? The characters reinforce the motif of movement by literally walking from Tennessee to the Atlantic Ocean from the beginning to the end of the novel. In the Christian virtue tradition, hope is the virtue that provides momentum a person needs to navigate life. If any of you have read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the famous allegory about the Christian life, you'll remember that one of the characters who accompanies the pilgrim on his journey is named Hopeful. 
This character is an indispensable part of the journey because hope personified makes possible the actual progression of the pilgrim. Hope also functions as the preeminent virtue of Dante's Purgatory, the section of the Divine Comedy featuring the movement of souls towards perfection and union with God. The road portrays movement as a virtue symbolized by the phrase carrying the fire. The man and the boy tell each other over and over again, we're carrying the fire, which motivates them to keep going. The man furthermore tells the boy stories he learned in the deceased world, old stories of courage and justice as he remembered them. From these stories, the boy derives his concept of the good guys. As the father tells him, these are the people who have hope, who keep moving, who don't give up, they keep trying. The image of carrying the fire and the narratives of the good guys, of courage and of justice, therefore reinforce the role of story in maintaining hope. Now this chapel series has, has focused on how we can learn virtues and the good life through stories. The English professor Karen Swallow Pryor insists visions of the good life present in the world's best literature can be agents for cultivating knowledge of and desire for the good. This is because as the philosopher James K. Smith says, our hearts traffic in stories. We learn to desire and to love things through stories. Think about the story you've been told or perhaps that you're telling yourself about the role of college in your life. It's a narrative that has taken hold of your heart. I'm going to study biology and learn certain skills, meet certain people, so I'll get into graduate school and obtain a particular job. Think of the life you are imagining for yourself. It's a story that likely involves some amount of professional success, success in love and relationships, having a beautiful home, sitting around the table with loved ones, the birth of children. These are all good visions of life, but I would encourage you to examine the narratives that give you hope, that motivate you, that drive your decisions. Are they aligned with what the Christian tradition teaches about the good life? Many of the dominant narratives of our culture overemphasize the satisfaction that comes from achieving professional success. They tend to exaggerate how you will feel if you make a lot of money. And perhaps more than anything else, they tend to elevate attention, fame, and the admiration of others as the supreme form of happiness. None of these things is bad in itself, but as I said, our culture tends to exaggerate these aspects of the good life. I encourage you to pay attention to stories that are about people who practice virtues, people who are hopeful and wise, courageous, and committed to justice. These stories tend to put less emphasis on fame and fortune and more on people's everyday commitment to the things God has given them to do, such as the Father's decision to hope for good things in the future in a situation that appears beyond hope. And so how do we grow in hope, our virtue for the day? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Both the Bible and the road seem to indicate that we grow in hope when we are suffering, when we are facing trials. It is when the world looks bleak that we are given opportunities to reject despair and to choose a hopeful perspective. Also look at James 1, 2 through 4, which says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. 
Again, the biblical text is bringing us back to this idea that suffering and trials give us a chance to grow in virtue. And although the text is undoubtedly referring to trials of all kinds, I think the kind of trial that we see represented in the road is particularly ripe for teaching us how to hope. The trial I'm referring to is the kind that has nothing to do with our own choices. The man's choices had nothing to do with the end of the world. He didn't ask to raise a child in a world where nothing will grow, where cannibals lurk at every turn. Likewise, none of the choices that people made in this room resulted in the COVID-19 pandemic. You didn't ask to go to college in a world marked by sickness and fear, shutdowns, masks, and vaccines. And yet here you are, in this time and place with things to do and people to care for. When the man says to his son, my job is to take care of you, I was appointed to do that by God, he is both stating the obvious and practicing the movement that develops his capacity for hope. By committing every day to protect his son and literally to move forward toward a life that he hopes will be better for them, he embodies hope. You, in turn, have been appointed by God to do things. I don't mean big, world-changing things like curing cancer or writing a best-selling book or bringing clean water to 5,000 people. I mean that God has appointed you to be faithful in the circumstances in which you find yourself, in the place where you are, with the people that are around you. Today, maybe that means writing a lab report, reading an article, solving equations. Maybe it means being kind and encouraging to your teammates or your roommates. I believe that it is your faithfulness in these things that God has appointed you to do, combined with your vision for a good life, that will help you to grow in hope. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you today in need of hope. There are times when we feel helpless. There are times when we feel weak. We pray for hope. We need hope for a better future. We need hope for a better life. We need hope for love and kindness. Some say that the sky is at its darkest just before the light. We pray that this is true, for it often seems dark. We need your, Lord, your light, Lord, in every way. We pray to be filled with your light from head to toe, to bask in your glory, to know that all is right in the world as you have planned and as you want it to be. Help us to walk in your light and live our lives in faith and hope. In your name we pray, amen.